0: Yeah, my advice for for the industry in general is like let's try to use the same methodology so we are in the same pace Uh, and also you know even when 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 i see particle size particle size doesn't change a lot if you do it once a week and if it takes you 10 extra minutes it's worth it
1: a whole new era of communication in the poultry industry is coming soon The brightest minds of the global poultry industry will be right in your pocket. And what's best, you can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Poultry Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like AX3 Digest is a highly digestible source of protein with a low level of potassium, giving young animals a healthy start. Adeseo provides nutritional solutions and services to help producers achieve their targets in high-quality, safe, and sustainable ways. DSM, helping customers with efficient and sustainable poultry production. At JBI, we apply biosecurity innovation and expertise to keep your operations safe. And AB Vista.
2: Hello and welcome. I'm Kate Malash, your host for this episode of the Poultry Podcast Show. Joining us today is our guest, Dr. Wilmer Pacheco, an associate professor and extension specialist at Auburn University in Auburn, Alabama. Dr. Pacheco was born in Honduras, where he obtained his bachelor's in food science and technology at the Pan American School of Agriculture in 2005. Shortly after graduating, he moved to North Carolina, where he began a feed milling manager trainee program with Murphy Brown, LLC. After a year in this program, he became the night shift supervisor and was responsible for overseeing production of approximately 10,000 tons of pelleted feed per week. In 2009, he obtained a scholarship in the Department of Poultry Science at North Carolina State University, where he earned his master's degree in poultry science and his doctorate in physiology and nutrition. Upon his graduation in 2014, he joined Auburn University's Department of Poultry Science. His research now centers on the interrelationships between feed milling, nutrition, physiology, and the effects of these relationships on poultry performance. He has authored more than 100 popular press and research articles and has been invited to present lectures in more than 12 countries. Welcome, Dr. Pacheco. How are you doing today?
0: Thank you, Kate. It's good uh, being with you today.
2: Yes, we're very excited to have you on the show. Before we jump into our topics for today, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, your background and what led you to be interested in feed manufacturing, feed milling, and its interactions with physiology?
0: Well, you know, like I feel like my uh, professional uh, career has been by, by accident. I would call it that way. Um, like, it's like funny you how that say, happens. Yeah. Like you said, uh, during the introduction, I'm from a really, really rural area in Honduras. And the only opportunity or the first opportunity that I obtained uh, to move to the city, to San Pedro Sula, was... um moving to a technical college. It's a, um, it's a college that was created by uh, the German government in Honduras. And then there you learn about like how to do preventive and corrective maintenance. So that's when I left, you know, my, my, my city, Las Vegas. And then when I was finishing um, the high school, I obtained a scholarship to study agriculture in, in, um, in, in Samorano in Honduras. And I remember that one of my brother was, like, really mad with me because he said, well, why do you want to go to agriculture after you you are in a technical college? So um, I just told him that I was, you know, ready to take that challenge. Samorano is the best agricultural university in Latin America. And uh, so I, I moved to samorano And then um, in Samorano, uh, my specialization was uh, food science and milk processing. And then uh, at the end of uh, the four year in Samorano, uh, Smithfield Foods offered me the opportunity to to come to the U.S. and work in a feed mill. And this is the nice thing about life, you know, like the all the knowledge that I got during the high school uh, served me really well uh, in my career in morfura. So for me, it was really easy to understand the process, but also connect, you know, like the the nutritional aspects of you know feed milling. So. Uh, basically, it was by by accident, and after uh, three and a half uh, years in uh, in a Smithfield, uh, I I obtained a scholarship for to go to to NC State and do my you know my master and my PhD in in uh, nutrition and physiology in the department of poultry science.
2: Wow, it's so funny how so many of us get into this field by accident, but I mean we have the best people, so it works out great. <laughs> I think once you start working in the poultry industry, you never want to leave. <laughs>
0: That is true, yeah.
2: For sure, for sure. Well, can you tell us some recent highlights from your current research? What are some hot topics in feed manufacturing, feed milling right now?
0: Well, you know, I feel like the hottest topic that uh, we have right now in my program is that uh, we are creating a, a methodology that we are expecting to publish pretty soon. And the goal of the methodology was to evaluate the particles in the microstructure of the pellet because you know, the industry, we have been focusing on what is the particle size of corn, for example. And then we know that uh, when we mix that corn with other ingredients, then the particle size after the mixer changes. And then once that uh, we send all that mixed feed to the pellet mill, uh, the particle size inside the pellet also changes. And uh, the industry has been using wet sieving for years. Um but wet sieving takes a lot of time. So basically one of my students, um, Susan Bonilla, she has been working in the in the methodology for more than two years. And what what we have been able to observe is like if you start, you know, like with a particle size of the of the meal at let's say a thousand microns as an average particle size, the pellets are gonna be like around seven hundred microns. So we can observe, like, around 300 microns um, decrease in, or or, uh, 300 microns grinding that occurs in the pellet mill. And I think this is going to be very important because, hopefully, it can allow the poultry industry to predict better what are the particle size requirements of the birds, because uh, sometimes, uh, as an industry, we only focus on the macrostructure of the pellet, how hard is the pellet, and microstructure is important for feed intake to decrease uh, feed segregation, but we need to remember that once that once that feed gets into the crop, the pellets get dissolved, and then the microstructure of the pellet get exposed, and that's what is more important. You know, from the crop on, uh, that's what affects you know gizzard development. That's what affects reverse peristalsis and uh, and uh, nutrient digestibility in general.
2: Mm-hmm. That is fascinating and obviously very relevant. I hadn't really thought about it that way, but perhaps this explains why taking particle size measurements on MASH never really seemed to correlate in the field to me with what we ended up seeing you know, coming out of the pellet mill or ending up in the feed pans. It was always so incredibly complex to define uh, all of those interactions. I love that you guys are going to a deeper level with this.
0: Yes, yes. Yeah.
2: Very cool. So do you think that will have ramifications on the recommendations for broilers for particle size um, at different stages of life? Or have you looked at the physiological and performance impacts of these different microstructures yet? Or is that kind of upcoming?
0: Yeah, we have done uh, some, some research. And um, we, uh, maybe like two years ago, we did uh, some research evaluating like three different feed forms and uh, using mash 3-millimeter pellets and 4-millimeter pellets, and then with different uh, particle sizes. We use 750, 1150, and 1550. And, you know, uh, Dr. Jessica Starkey was helping us, you know, with the necropsy, and she was uh, really impressed to see that when uh, we were feeding birds with a uh, 3-millimeter dye, and then 750 microns, we had Proventriculitis in all the birds that we were. Um, so, yeah, you can already see that if you start, like, with a, a small a particle size and then you use a smaller uh, pellet dye, then you are going to have finer particles in the that microstructure of the pellet. And then you won't see, I mean, the, the gizzard is not going to be too small, but then what becomes big is the Proventriculus. And, uh, So, you can see just like a tube, you cannot see a good um, separation between Giza and the proventriculus, which, you know, I always tell the industry that we need to respect these organs because they have different function. I mean, the the proventriculus is important for pepsinogen and hydrochloric production. That's what is going to start the uh, protein digestion. So, when the peptides enter the small intestine, then the proteases from the pancreas can do a better job you know, breaking down those amino acids. So we we have been doing uh, some of that um, research, but at the end, the goal will be maybe like this. This takes time, but maybe five years from now, we can create like a prediction equation that could tell you, okay, if the particle size of the meal is this. This is what you are gonna get in you know, inside the the, the, the pellet. And I think that, that, that would be helpful for the for the for the poultry industry.
2: That would be amazing, incredibly beneficial, especially because, you know, every mill is a little bit different. So, you know, factoring in things, I would imagine like, you know, what specs you have on your hammer mill, what size pellet mill are you working with, what size mixer are you working with. It's probably and, and type of mixer would probably impact all those things. So Yes, it's a much more complicated system than it looks like on its face, you know. So you mentioned, you know, various um, particle size target numbers. And I wanted to talk to you about those because I frequently see people use a single number as a reference target, such as we're targeting, you know, 800 microns. Um, But what they really mean is they're targeting a geometric mean diameter of 800 microns, which is just a descriptive statistic from the distribution of the particle size. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the pros and cons of having a single number target and whether people should be doing anything to take variability into account or any practical experience you have on how different uh, particle distributions can impact what you end up with as an end result?
0: Yeah. uh, Well, you know, like uh, I feel like when you think about nutrition, uh, you think about like you don't you don't feel the same level of lysine, right to the birds in the starter grower and finisher, but in the poultry industry we still choose a particle size and then that's what we see throughout the the grow out uh, periods. What our research tells us is that as the birds get older, they, we should increase the the geometric particle size. However, like you, like you are mentioning, geometric, I think we need to look also the distribution of the particles and based on my research, you know, what what I typically do, Kate, is like I try to keep at least 45% of the particles above uh, the sieve number 16, which has an opening of 1,990 microns. Uh, so, the idea is like have enough coarse particles above that sieve, and those are going to be the particles that are going to stimulate gizzard development and uh, reverse peristalsis, because maybe you can have a lot of particles over 2000 and then a lot of particles over or less than uh, um, 400 microns and then your average is still going to be uh, is going to be hundred. so the idea here is to have a good particle distribution sometimes with with hammer mills sometimes can be more difficult because with hammer mills you're going to have a lot of big particles and small ones But now I think the majority of the industry is moving to uh, BFDs in hammer mills to slow down the tip speed. That way you can get a more uniform particle size. Um, But I I feel like the the industry has the opportunity to to move those targets. And, um, you know, like what I typically advise is that, you should just go and, uh, and look the birds, you know, and do necropsies at the field or just check geese and proventriculus development in the processing plant if you can. And if, uh, if you don't have the logistics in a feed mill to, to have different particle sizes, one idea that I, I, I have been proposing is that you got broiler corn and then you, got, you also produce breeders. So one of the things that I'm proposing is like, if you don't if you don't have a good geese of development, you can force a percentage of the breeder corn into a broiler diet. And you don't have to be like, you don't have to start with 10%, you can start with 3% in the starter, then go to 5% in the grower, 7% in the finisher. That way you don't have to, you don't need multiple beans. And uh, uh, the other thing is like, uh, when you make these changes, then you should start monitoring seven-day body uh, weight because if you go too coarse, then that's gonna be one of the disadvantages. The bird is just gonna take longer uh, to grind the feed in the in the, in the the gizzard, and then that's gonna decrease feed intake and, and body weight. So seven-day body weight might be a good uh, alternative when you make these changes or something that you need to monitor in the field.
2: That's great information. It's definitely a balance. Um, I think we have a lot of good evidence that those coarser corn particles are extremely important physiologically for the digestive health of the bird. However, often when it's brought up to have an inclusion of a coarser corn, um, there are questions raised about the impact on pellet durability. Um, Could you talk a little bit about that and how do people strike that balance?
0: Well, you know, like what I ask always is like, uh, I ask, do you sell chickens or do you sell feed? And... uh, So basically, if we are selling our chickens, we need to focus on pellet quality, right? But there are different factors that affect pellet quality. So we sometimes, you know, the feed mills don't have a lot of control on on feed formulation, but they have control on our conditioning temperature. And uh, when we have coarser particles, these particles are gonna take longer to hydrate in the conditioner. So we need to find alternatives uh, to increase retention time. Maybe you know adjusting the uh, the paddles in the conditioner. Uh, we can increase conditioning temperature. The the majority of or all all research that we have done here in Auburn shows that as you increase conditioning temperature, you improve pellet quality. But um, there is a point you don't want to go uh, over 190 because you don't get a, a big improvement in pellet quality when you go over a 195 uh, 190 Fahrenheit degrees. But then you can start damaging enzymes, you can start damaging vitamins, etc. So just keep that balance. And then also, you know, we can control pellet quality by controlling the amount of fat that we add in the mixer. And the other part that we always forget, and uh, I laugh, you know, when I think about this, but when we think on coolers, we always think on cooling. But they are also drier. So it's, it's good to take samples after the cooler. And also analyze the moisture level of the pellets because that can tell you if you can uh, make changes on the depth of the pellets in the cooler, or you can make uh, changes in airflow. Sometimes these are changes that are easy to make in the computer, but you need to know that information. How are your are your pellets uh, dry enough? Because if you are not removing that moisture, then you are diluting the nutritional content of the feed. And then that's gonna have a, a negative effect on feed conversion in the in the field. So the idea here, Kate, is focus on the other factors that affect pellet quality, control those ones without uh, compromising the microstructure or yeah, the microstructure of the pellet.
2: That's good advice. So you mentioned measurements uh, like that moisture differential in the cooler. Are there any other measurements that you think we aren't looking at as routinely as maybe we
0: should? Well, you know, like. Uh, The moisture we should check, Uh, the other thing is, um, you know, like the coolers always have, like, uh, um, temperature sensors at the exit. Uh, It is important to keep controlling what is the temperature that the pellets are leaving the cooler. And uh, even, I mean, sometimes the operators don't have enough time to keep looking so many parameters. I mean, you have been in, you know, in these feed mills, and there is a lot going on. So, a good way would be to put alarms. So you can put a uh, maximum set points, and then if there is a uh, if the uh, temperature of the pellets goes above that set point, the same system can tell uh, the 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 operator that there is an issue there, uh, because you know like sometimes um, the systems when they are working they are just checking that the motors are running, and let's say if the motor in the in the in the cooler is running but the fan is not running. Then you are gonna get pellets that are hot and moist, and if the operator doesn't pay attention to that temperature, then that can create an issue. The the other part that is important um, from the cooling perspective, particularly during the winter time, is to have a good uh, isolation of the duct system, and also to make sure that you got enough uh, or good air speed through the duct because that uh, air that is leaving, you know, the cooler has a lot of moisture and has a lot of micro in it. So if that air cools down before it leaves the facility, then you can, I, I have been in some feed mills that they have some mud, particularly during the winter. And that can be due to poor isolation of the dogs or not enough uh, air speed in the dogs during the winter time.
2: Good advice, for sure. Um, so we've seen in the industry a lot of, Uh, consolidation and movement towards these mega mill uh, type new feed mills where it's extremely high volume out of one feed mill. I was wondering, because you're running research out of a pilot mill, an exceptionally nice pilot mill at Auburn University there, um, how do you make your research applicable to um, these gigantic feed mills? Do you work in partnership with the industry to try and replicate what you're looking at in research outside of the university? could you just talk a little bit about uh, how your program achieves this balance between um, doing things on a, on a micro scale versus doing things on a mega scale?
0: Yeah. So, you know, what what I, you know, what I have done is like uh, when we think about our feed mill in Auburn, uh, we have very similar equipment that the industry uses. So a good way to, to replicate, uh, you know, the research that we do here is having a feed mill that is representative of what the industry has. Um the other thing is that um sometimes I have the opportunities to go to feed meals and do like, you know, a, a small research. So like um um I can go to a feed meal and then start changing conditioning temperature or trying to change retention time in the in the conditioner, and then we obtain very similar uh results to to what we obtain here in um in uh, in Auburn University. It's you know like I think the industry has done a really good job with these research feed mills, like the one that we have in Auburn, Kansas State or NC State, that we can pretty much replicate. The main differences that we see is that in a research feed mill, uh, the compression ratio in the pellet die is uh, smaller than what the big feed mills do. Like you know, for example, uh, our LD ratio in in our feed mill uh, in the pellet dye in our feed mill is. Nine, but when you go to the industry, you're gonna see like thicker dies, uh maybe like with a compression ratio of eleven to twelve.
2: Interesting. Well I'm glad that everything is, you know, replicating well in the field versus uh in the university pilot mill. That's always very reassuring to see. Absolutely. So one pet peeve that I have on the uh particle size and in-process quality assurance side that I wanted to ask you about is um For sure, in university studies, you know, you're using whatever the standard method is for measuring particle size. You pick a method that's published and you stick with it. What I've noticed is that in the field, like you mentioned, everyone in the mill is incredibly busy. Um, The feed mill quality assurance folks are trying to keep a lot of plates spinning in the air. Occasionally, shortcuts are taken with methodology. Um, Are they... Losing some of the benefits of using a full methodology by shortening the time or shortening the number of sieves used on a particle size analysis, or does it not really matter as long as they're consistent mill to mill?
0: Well, you know, like uh, it matters a lot because let's say when we do the research in the in the university, we use a methodology that is the standard methodology, right? And uh, we we say, well, this will be the optimum. If you change the methodology, you can get a completely different result and uh, so whatever we are telling you know that the optimum that optimum if the optimum for me is uh, let's say 900 microns uh, depending on the methodology that you're using you might be getting 700 or a thousand so the main differences that I see in the industry with particle size is that we don't use uh, in, in some films mills we don't use all the sieve stacks so instead of using 12, we only use six. And this, you know, the main issue there is that when when uh, the female mill order the sieve, they get like um, full height, which is uh, two inches, instead of half height, which is uh, one inch. So when you use those six sieves, the risk that you have is that a lot of material is gonna stay in only one sieve, because you are distributing the 100 grams in six instead of 12. So once that uh once it gets full, then you might have particles on top that are small enough to go through the sieve, but they don't have a space so they stay. So you sometimes can overestimate the 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 particle size that you are actually providing to the birds. So uh, also I think it's important to mention that companies are doing efforts to uh, to evaluate particle size using NIR. I'm sure that you are aware. Um, I think that that's gonna be a you know a, a tool that we are gonna be able to use in the uh, in the industry to have real time information uh, regarding the particle size that we are obtaining from from uh, from uh, our grinding equipment. Mm, that is a good point. Yeah, my advice, you know, you know, for for the industry in general is like let's try to use the same methodology so we are in the same pace uh, and also. You know, even when, when, when I see particle size, particle size doesn't change a lot. If you do it once a week and if it takes you 10 extra minutes, it's worth it. Hmm.
2: I appreciate you saying that. I was certainly leading the witness with that question there, but I appreciate you reiterating that the full method uh, really gets you the full amount of information that you need.
0: Yes. Yes.
2: Very cool. Um, you mostly focus on corn particle size. Do you think there's value in measuring the particle size of other ingredients, both from a physiological standpoint for the bird as well as from a pellet quality standpoint?
0: Yeah, you know, like um, we 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 typically focus on corn, soybean meal. There is some uh, interest on the particle size of soybean meal. What what um, I have observed is that if you grind soybean meal, you can improve pellet quality by 10 to 15%, but then you lose a few points in feed conversion in the field. So um, I think it's worth it also to focus on the particle size of a limestone because you know the particle size is gonna change if you are feeding broilers versus if you are feeding breeders or layers. So that's another one uh, that, that we need to pay attention to.
2: That's a good point. Switching gears a little bit uh, away from particle size, but still in feed milling, um, have you seen any good recent work on the impact of feed milling on salmonella control? Often the feed mills are kind of uh, called upon to help with efforts to reduce you know, the salmonella load or to protect the birds from external sources of salmonella. Uh, would you be willing to speak a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, we we did a we did a project a few years ago, and uh, we couldn't we we didn't uh, use you know Salmonella. We use uh, Enterococcus faecium, which is a surrogate microorganism. And um, based on that, our uh, research, what we observe is that if you can get to 85 Celsius degrees, you can deactivate uh, 10 to the sixth log of uh, in in the surrogate, which could translate to 10 to the 6 uh, log reduction in salmonella. Um, you know, like what the industry is doing right now, they are using hygienizers uh, to to extend, you know, the, the retention time uh, and then provide that extra insurance for, for salmonella control. But what we have observed is that 85 Celsius is, is enough. And the other part that, um, Uh, I have been involved, too, it's like looking the incidence of salmonella in in feed ingredients. And we haven't seen, you know, um, problems with salmonella in feed ingredients uh, from the feed mills that we have sampled, and we have sampled in Alabama and in other places in the the United States. Um, But, you know, like, when we think in salmonella, we need to focus on that processing control, but also how we prevent Recontamination contamination after the thermal processing. So, uh, this is, we need to take care of the conditioning, temperature and retention time, but also we need to make sure that the coolers are clean, that they are not a source of you know contamination, make sure that the air that is entering the cooler is clean. And then the other part that is important is that uh, the boots of the elevators, let's make sure that the boots are clean. Uh, the good thing is like the majority of the pellet lakes are inside the facility, but it's it's good to go and check. And if you see like buildup of um, material in the pellet lake, it's it's a good practice to remove. Then also you can use some um, let's say some chemical controls. So you can use um, uh, organic acids. And what you what I typically see is like formic acid, lactic acid, and acetic acid. That's going to be good for uh, bacterial control um, and I was talking with a friend in Colombia, and he was telling me that if if you are producing let's say pet food uh, because the extrusion can control you know the bacterial load, then now you can use propionic acid to control mold growth, and that way you can extend the shelf life of the of the uh, of the pet food, so depending on the different um feeds that you are producing, then the strategy will be different. Um, one, one thing that is important here to mention, Kate, is that, you know, like the, the, the thermal processing can control very well Salmonella, E. coli. Uh, however, if we have Clostridia in the feed ingredients, then we are going to have it in the mixed feed and we are going to have it in the pelleted feed, just because they form a spores and then they can survive the, the thermal processing.
2: Hmm, that's a really good point. I think we tend to get tunnel vision a little bit about salmonella and other you know, food safety organisms, which are, of course, important, but there's also a bird health standpoint as well.
1: Working with nature and not against it, chickens fed AX3 Digest consume significantly less feed and water to produce one pound of meat. Successful flock performance is determined during the first 10 days post-placement. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible novel protein that promotes improved in barn performance, bird health, and a drier litter. For more information, visit www.protecta.com. DSM strives to bring our customers efficient, sustainable poultry solutions, from essential vitamins like High D to next generation products like Hyphorius for efficient phosphorus utilization and Biofix to counteract naturally occurring metabolites in feed. Our portfolio is growing as we continue to bring innovation to the poultry industry. Visit dsm.com slash anh to learn more about our newest solutions. It's time for our Famous Three.
2: Well, I'm looking at our time and it's getting close to wrapping up. At the end of each podcast, we typically ask the guests the same three questions. Um, so I would like to ask you those now. Um, the first is... What is your favorite book or other resource? Could be a website, podcast, uh, popular press, and just any favorite resource in the feed manufacturing area.
0: Well, you know, like um, Feed Technology is a good book. I like to read that one. And I also like to, you know, even though I don't work a lot with health, but I like to see like the poultry health today. Uh, I think they, they have really good information there.
2: Yes, timely, for sure. That's a great recommendation. Uh, The next question is outside of your field. So this can be anything that you're interested in right now. Can you give a recommendation of any sort of resource, book, podcast, newsletter? Um, And it doesn't have to be at all related to poultry.
0: Well, you know, like it's funny, but uh, I I listen a lot to CNBC business. And I really love to because uh, you learn about like different trends that are happening around the globe. Some of them are related with uh, with agriculture, but sometimes are related with um, technology. I really like that.
2: Oh, that's very helpful, especially thinking about supply chain and commodity markets and just kind of having your ear to the ground on what's going on in the world is a great idea. Good recommendation. And then lastly, I'd like you to think of someone that you would characterized as successful and that can be by whatever you think of as successful be it in work family life personal life as a person um you don't have to say who it is but if you could just talk about what kind of qualities or characteristics do you think make a person successful
0: well you know like um i think the most successful people that i have known are my parents because uh they didn't they didn't have the opportunity to go to the school but uh, they were able to raise 10 children yeah and all of us we were able to go to the school so i feel like um you can measure the successful based on the successful of the children if you have children but um for me like you know the successful people is like the people that is happy with what they do um so i really like for me i feel like i'm successful because i love what i do um and also uh because you can um, influence the life of others in a positive way. Uh, that, that's what I think success means.
2: I absolutely agree. That's a great definition of success. And truly, really, I mean, if you enjoy what you do, it makes it so much easier and so much more fun. So thank you for sharing that.
0: Yeah, I always think that I could only have a better job and it uh, would be a soccer player, but I'm too old for that.
2: <laughs> yes, we all have that dream job out there. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for coming on the Poultry Podcast show today, Dr. Pacheco. We really appreciate it, and we hope to speak with you again sometime soon.
0: Thank you, Kate.
2: Hope you have a great rest of the day.